Good morning. Can you hear my heartbeat? <laughs> How many of you here have read or watched the news this week? Anybody? Learning of innumerable crises around the world? What would you say if I ask you, what is the biggest problem we face in our world today? Just shout out some answers. People. <laughs> Good one. Yeah? Any problems? Yes. Yeah, could add some more, I'm sure global warming, I think I heard racism, poverty, COVID, wars, terrorism, drug addiction, disinformation, loneliness. Unfortunately, this list could go on. These are all huge problems, ugly scars, on the face of our beautiful planet. Some have been with us forever. Some are new challenges to our generation. Some affect our older generation more acutely, and others press on our youth and our children. I think that each generation could tell a tale about difficult challenges they had in their specific era. Why are these problems so persistent? Why haven't we gotten rid of them? With all the huge advantages in technology and science, what is at the root of these problems? And most importantly, what is the cure? In today's story, as Jason said, one of his favorite, one of mine too, <laughs> Jesus showed us the biggest, the greatest predicament that we face, an issue that concerns each one of us, no matter where we live, no matter what skin color, age, or gender. And as it turns out, it is also the costliest to solve. Today we look at this most significant miracle Jesus ever performed. One that meets our deepest need and costs the highest price. One that brings the greatest blessing and the, last, the most lasting results. Child, you are forgiven. Forgiven. That word literally means sent away gone forever. Why is there a need for that? Because it is the root of all those woes that we just listed, and many more. Because sin, our rebellion, our cry for self-governance, leaves this gaping hole between us and our Creator. 
The problem of sin, though not as visible as physical sickness, is the fundamental problem of humanity that Jesus came to counteract. Some of you might be thinking, sin? What an old-fashioned and outdated concept. The Hebrew word of, the, of uh, what we translate as sin actually means missing the mark. And it goes beyond just violating rules, but means failing to be all we know we should be. I think that if we're honest and look deep down into our heart, we all know that we are broken in many places, individually but also as a society. Just take a look at the headlines. And we know instinctively that it's not supposed to be like this, that we are missing the mark. So hear me out, or actually I should say hear Luke out. Let's zoom out, uh, zoom out for a minute and look at the historical context of our passage today. We find ourselves in first century uh, Palestine, and Dr. Luke recounts this incredible incident that took place in Jesus' early ministry in the region of Galilee. When you read the first few chapters of Luke, you see this um, progression as Jesus establishes and then expands his authority and inaugurates a new kingdom. He stuns people with his authority over short-term disease. Remember when he healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law from a fever? Over nature, with the miraculous uh, catch of fish, remember Mark last week, uh, that um, showed us so creatively? Over chronic disease, when he healed the leper, just before this passage. And now, our deepest need, sin. In last passage, do you remember, um, Simon Peter fell on his knees and cried out. Somebody remember what he cried out? I am, remember? A sinful man. There is humanity's problem. Our mark is not society's latest and ever-changing standards of correctness, but the holiness of God. And we all miss that mark. These miracles that this young rabbi performed, they were not just random acts to impress a crowd, but ancient prophecy unraveling before our eyes, signs of the long-awaited Messiah. When John the Baptist heard the deeds of Jesus, he sent his disciples and asked him, are you the Messiah? Or should we wait for another one? Do you remember what Jesus replied? He didn't reply with a theological argument. But this is what he said. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Signs of the kingdom of God breaking through. 
Now let's zoom in and visit Jesus' hometown during his adult years, his home away from home, Capernaum. This is where Jesus based his Galilean ministry, teaching in the synagogue and performing many miracles. Maybe you can go back to the map of Israel so we can see the geography. We are in the northwest corner uh, of the Sea of Galilee, which is, uh, you see, sort of this pear-shaped freshwater lake that was about 21 kilometers from north to south and about 11 kilometers from east to west. And it's, in fact, the lowest freshwater lake on Earth at 200 meters below sea level. Capernaum, you can see it on the map, was a port town of about 7,000 people, close to a vital, important trade route called the King's Highway, or Via Regia uh, in Latin. It connected Syria in the north and uh, Egypt in the south. And then, of course, um, let me get my geography right, east to uh, Asia and then uh, west to Europe and uh, in the south uh, to Africa. So, super important highway. And of course, as you can imagine, this made uh, Capernaum, this is a modern picture here, um, very strategic. Many towns from around this, the Sea of Galilee would ship their commerce into Capernaum to transact with this international highway. Which, by the way, is why we find a tax collector, Levi, in Capernaum. Uh, where there was lots of taxes to collect. Our story today most likely uh, takes place in Peter's house. So I would like to explore from our passage today uh, four um, different points. And yes, they all start with F, if you don't look. Friends, <laughs> Pharisees, forgiveness, and faith. First, let's talk about these crazy friends. Remember, this was a culture with little medical provision. They didn't have a lot of safety, social safety nets. There wouldn't have been much hope uh, for this paralyzed man for cure or any improvement. We don't know how long he was paralyzed, but we are pretty sure that he would have been shunned by the society and stigmatized. Often illness was also seen as spiritual, a judgment from God. Remember when the disciples asked Jesus, when they saw a blind man, who sinned? Was it him or was it his parents? Many people with disabilities were reduced to uh, begging in the streets. And we actually often saw this in Morocco, uh, where disabled people would, uh, even small children, they would put them out in the street uh, to beg and just cruelly uh, exploit uh, their disabilities, heartbreaking. I'm amazed at the friends of this man. They were not ashamed of him. Because even today, it's not cool to hang out with the marginalized or the poor. Uh, we often uh, were asked when we were in Morocco why, by our wealthier friends, why we would uh, talk to the garbage men or the beggars. That was not done. And I, th there's a cute picture of uh, Brian when he was very little. I don't know if you can find it. Um, with his good friend, the garbage man.
Maybe we can find it later. These friends, these guys, got their hands dirty. They took risks. They were persistent. They were crazy and radical. There was, um, I, I call it like a holy stubbornness about them. They believed that Jesus was the only one who could help their friend. And they wouldn't <clears throat> stop at any obstacles. Not the crowd, not stairs, and not even a roof. We need to get him to Jesus, no matter what it takes, they said. Their faith and their hope and their longing for their friend to be healed eclipsed their fear of failure and the fear of what other people would say. This is where God wants us to live. That's where he lives. First obstacle, the crowd. No way get to get to Jesus through this crowd. Let's try another time. That's what probably I would have said, but not these guys. I imagine one of them scratching his head and suddenly going, let's go through the roof. What an audacious idea. I imagine the expression on the other friend's face. Huh? The roof? First century homes had flat, uh, Jewish homes had flat roofs. Um, as we had in Morocco, <laughs> this is upside down. This is a picture of our roof in Morocco. I don't know if you can turn it or not, otherwise just go like this. Um, and they had outside uh, staircases to get up on the roof. And it would actually be used as a living area, so they would dry uh, fruit and vegetables and uh, uh, nap up there um, and pray. I remember spending lots of time on our uh, Moroccan roof, uh, washing clothes and drying them, uh, washing wheat, uh, laying them out to dry, or olives, um, or just, you know, uh, enjoying the breeze after uh, a hot day. So these roofs were typically composed of firmly packed earth with clay and straw, and they would be laid over a wooden grid, and the result was a really thick uh, earthen roof hardened with hardened clay and resting on wood. So you can imagine that would be a very time-consuming uh, task to dig a hole uh, into a roof big enough to get a man on a mat through it. Uh, fortunately, <laughs> rabbis in those days, they taught as long as people listened. This gaping hole in the roof would be really hard to repair. And we can be sure that the owner of the house was not very impressed to get a new skylight in his home. All that digging and cutting must have created quite a commotion in the crowd. Uh, I just imagine like the, the, this, uh, the noise starting on top and then uh, you know, little debris starting to fall and then suddenly blue sky peeking through the roof and then everybody staring up in disbelief, and I'm sure the house owner in horror. And suddenly, someone was lowered, a man lying on a mat. Quite an entrance. I imagine the four friends peeking through the hole nervously, not knowing what kind of reception their friend would receive. 
if they will be rebuked maybe for their outrageous act. So what about us? What kinds of friends are we? What do we do when we face obstacles to bring others to Jesus? These men stopped at nothing. Their desperation to help him was strong, so strong, that impossibilities became challenges to overcome. Personally, I often let obstacles or difficulties deter me. I guess it wasn't meant to be. Maybe another time. It's too hard. Or my personal favorite, it'll take too much time. These friends didn't care how much trouble or how much time they needed to invest. They knew reaching Jesus would be worth it. Holy determination. Faith through the roof. Who is God inviting you to bring to Jesus? To what lengths are you willing to go? Do you persist or quickly give up? Do you believe that their greatest need is Jesus? Even when there's no outward miracle? Do I still believe that he always gives me the best? And while we're at it, how about us personally? How desperate am I to rest at Jesus' feet? As I'm getting older, I am convinced that one of the secrets of life are little, small, tiny, healthy, consistent habits. A small but a really powerful tool that I have found in my personal life to grow closer to God was my decision many years ago to get up an hour earlier uh, than I had to get ready for work. And um, I designated a chair. I would have my Bible and papers and pens and reading glasses ready. And I would spend that time uh, with God at Jesus' feet. And this is a seemingly really insignificant habit. But it really profoundly changed the way that I walk through my day because I am aligning my goals and my dreams and my desires with God's will. I practice this simple discipline every day and the more I do it, the more I cherish it and I protect it. Let's make it an absolute priority to get ourselves in the healing presence of Jesus so that we are equipped to then go out and bring others to him. Let's get creative. Don't let a little roof stop you. Let me tell you a few great stories of this holy tenacity. I think of Brian McConaughey, uh, the founder of Ratanak, a ministry that fights human trafficking in Cambodia. This is getting creative. <laughs> Maybe you want to show the picture of the little girl. This little girl, it's a bad picture, but um, this little girl's name is Ratanak. And uh, she is actually the reason why Brian uh, left the RCMP and spent uh, the last 30 years rescuing slaves uh, in Cambodia. 
tragically, this little beautiful girl died because of a lack of medical supply. Brian proceeded to smuggle huge containers of life-saving medication into war-ravaged Cambodia, while, by the way, still working for the RCMP. His ministry built 10 uh, clinics in rural uh, areas in Cambodia. Six of the 10 clinics were destroyed by the Khmer Rouge or severely damaged. Brian and his ministry rebuilt them. They did not give up. Here's a quote from Brian in his email to me this week. Quote, as I look back on 32 years of work in Cambodia, it's absurd trying to bring hope to a place known as the killing fields is a bit of a joke. I always say I'm just too stupid and stubborn to give up and go home. Yet God has honored this weakness well beyond what I ever dreamed. It has been neither easy nor quick, but over time with much stress, he has done great things. I think of Himalayan life ministry. They have built a school in an earthquake-ravaged area in Nepal. When the school was destroyed this year by a flash flood, I did not hear capitulation from Daniel Berge, the founder, but a firm determination to rebuild and continue to bring life to Himalayan children against all odds. Here is his comment after this tragedy. Land, this quote, land can be replaced, buildings can be rebuilt. And there I say it, rebuilding we will, because we must not ever give up on the children in whose lives we have lit up the flame of hope. At work, I see seniors finding creative ways of reaching out to people. I think of Teresa, who put a, a, hot, uh, a thermos with hot, fresh coffee in front of a senior that was shut in every morning. And as I walk by the hallway there and seeing this thermos filled and then empty and filled and empty, it just touched me. It's a reminder of creative and tenacious love. I think of uh, Francis, another resident, another senior. When, remember the heat wave? It's hard to remember. He just left his door unlocked when he went to work so that vulnerable seniors could walk into his suite and sit in the air-conditioned room. That is finding ways. That is uh, uh, opening our homes, praying, finding uh, creative ways, out, thinking outside the box, going through the roof. Now let's take a closer look at an intriguing section of the crowd, the Pharisees and scribes. They had come from all over the nation, even Jerusalem. Pharisees were a, a Jewish religious party and their, their name meant the separated ones. Their goal was to preserve 
the Jewish beliefs and in institutions against pagan and secular influence. Uh, we can think of Nicodemus and or Saul of Tarsus, they were Pharisees. The Sadis, uh, scribes were a legal expert scholars of the law, but sadly many have become really legalistic and hypocritical, and Jesus actually reserved his sharpest remarks for them. Why were in the, they in the crowd? in Capernaum? Why was Jesus already this early in his ministry up in Galilee on their radar? Maybe what Jesus did just before this story uh, will give us a little hint. Remember what he did just before this story? He healed a leper. Some rabbis taught that this would only happen when the Messiah came. So when Jesus directed the healed leper to the priest for inspection, he basically signaled that the Messiah had come. That's why they sent these investigative teams. They were going to prevent a false prophet from leading people astray. Blasphemy, by the way, was punishable by death. Healing a leper or forgiving sins was supposed to go through the official authorized channels, not come through some ordinary man. What saddens me is their blindness to what was right in front of their eyes. They only saw broken rules and a threat to their authority, but they missed seeing the Messiah. How tragic is that? And I'm asking myself, do we sometimes have this pharisaical spirit in us, knowing all the right religious buzzwords, zealous for moral correctness, but indifferent to the presence of the, and the power and the compassion of God, knowing him, honoring him with our lips, but our hearts being far from him? how easily we can miss the real thing. We're puffed up with knowledge, but we don't see him. What would it have taken the Pharisees to recognize the Messiah? I'm thinking humility, curiosity, a hunger for God. We can be so correct, yet so wrong. Thirdly, I want to talk about forgiveness. Jesus looked at the disabled man and said, son, or the, the original word means child, your sins are forgiven. What? It's not why we came. But Jesus knew what the paralytic man needed more than anything else was being restored in the relationship with his creator not only physically healed from his paralysis, but healed from the paralysis of sin. When Jesus forgave the man before he healed him, he showed that our spiritual need is more basic than our need for physical healing. Jesus gave him the greater gift. Of course, the religious leader had an immediate problem with Jesus pronouncing forgiveness, they were horrified. Who is this man who speaks blasphemy? Who can forgive sin but God alone? 
And of course, they were right. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, he challenged them with a trick question. What's easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? And of course, it's easy to say, I can say to you, your sins are forgiven. I can't say to you, you're healed physically. It was a trick question. And of course, while it's much easier, uh, while it's much harder to forgive, to heal somebody physical, but to forgive sins actually cost Jesus his life. At this time, to be righteous was to keep the law and to stay ceremonially clean and go to uh, do the sacrifices at a temple. There could be no real forgiveness without it. But Jesus had just said to this paralytic, you're forgiven. There were no animal sacrifice. And they were right. It says in Hebrews, there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. But in just a little while, on a Roman cross, Jesus would be the sacrifice, the lamb without blemish, who would take away the sins of the world. Israel's greatest symbol, the temple, would be replaced by the symbol of a cruel Roman instrument of execution, a cross. It required unspeakable suffering and outrageous love from Jesus to buy our pardon. It cost him his life. He healed us of the only disease that can really and finally kill us. This right here is the heart of the gospel. Jesus had preached. He had cast out demons. He had healed the sick. He had called disciples. He cleansed the leper. But now he was meeting an even deeper need. He was making a way for us to be right with God for all eternity. Jesus says the same to each one of us on the basis of his death on the cross. Child, you are forgiven. No longer a slave to sin, but a child of God. He fulfilled the law's requirement in our place and so protects us from condemnation. What a savior. His offense was to offer forgiveness outside the sacrificial system and, of course, to all the wrong people, the prostitutes, the poor, the marginalized. This was scandalous to some, but so glorious to others, included me. And, of course, the beauty of all of this is that as we understand more fully what Jesus has done for us, we are free to forgive others. I read a beautiful example uh, in a book called Amish Grace. Has anybody read that or seen the movie? The subtitle is How Forgiveness Transcended History. It recounts uh, the Amish community's uh, astonishing reaction to the horrific school uh, killing 
in 2006 in a schoolhouse in Pennsylvania. Five little girls were killed and four more wounded. The community responded with faith and forgiveness for the killer's family. One Amish man held the sobbing father of the killer in his arms to comfort him. These incredible acts of forgiveness and grace stunned the world. Forgive as Christ has forgiven you. And lastly, I want to talk about faith. It says in Hebrews 11, without faith, it is impossible to please God. Jesus saw these men's faith. They trusted him. They came in desperation, knowing he was their only hope. I find it so beautiful how Jesus responded even to this man's, the helpless man lying on the mat, to his unspoken longing. We don't have to have it all together to marry God's forgiveness. We just have to want it and trust him. It's absolute grace. I think Jesus loves to see faith, and he found it in amazing and surprising places. I see here that Jesus linked faith with miracles. He did the same in other uh, instances. For example, to the centurion whose servant he healed, he said, I have not found faith like this in all of Israel. He said to the bleeding woman who touched him and who was instantly healed, daughter, your faith has healed you. And to the blind beggar on the roadside, he said, receive your sight. Faith has healed you. God honors faith. This really challenges me because I find that fear and worry come much easier to me than believing God who said he would take care of me no matter what. No matter what that would look like. Physical healing now or ultimate healing forever. Where are you paralyzed by guilt, anxiety, shame, toxic habits, failures? Where do you need to believe his word that he will always be with you no matter what? Jesus took your brokenness to set you free. By his wounds, we are healed. This man was changed. He was a changed man after this encounter with Jesus. He had come through the roof, a desperate, broken, helpless man, but he left by the front door, carrying the mat that once carried him, forgiven, free, praising God, beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, a garment of praise for the spirit of despair. Let's believe God's word more than what we feel or what people or what Facebook says. In one of my darkest hours, when my husband was expelled from Morocco, when I was assailed by worries and fears, I made a list and I brought it with me. It says, Meknes, Morocco, April 2010. One side is me, the other side is he. I'm not gonna read the whole thing, just pick out a few. Me, 
I'm alone. I will never forsake you. My husband is gone. Your maker is your husband. Isaiah 54. I never saw that passage before this time. I'm scared. They're plotting against us. The Lord loves at their plans, Psalm 2. I can't anymore. I'm overwhelmed. My body all over the world is lifting you up. We messed up our kids. Actually, they are my kids. I will take care of them. Was it all a waste? The accuser? It was about me all along. My kingdom cannot be shaken, Hebrews 12. I'm falling. Lean on me, child. I carry the weight of the world on my shoulders, Isaiah 9. And now what? Just another step in your pilgrimage on the way home. Your citizenship is in heaven. I realized faith is not some mystical feeling, but a practical, everyday listening, obeying, and trusting him. Maybe you need to make a list. Tell him honestly how you feel. And then listen to his strong, compassionate, and infinitely loving voice, his words to you. Faith just means taking him at his word. Let me finish with one of my favorite stories of forgiveness. It's called Somebody's Son by Richard Pindell. He tells the story of a son who left home after a deep rift with his father. After having been away for a long time, he writes a letter home to his mom. Dear mom, if dad will permit it, I would like to come home. I know there's little chance he will. I will be passing by our place by train. If there's any chance dad will have me back, ask him to tie a white cloth to the apple tree in the south pasture. I'll be going by on the train. If there's no cloth on the tree, I'll just quietly keep going. As the sun neared his home on the train, he couldn't look. He was too afraid the cloth would not be there. Desperately, he nudged the passenger beside him. Mister, will you do me a favor? Around the bend, you'll see an apple tree. I wonder if you could tell me if you see a white cloth tied to one of his branches. As they passed the field, the boy stared straight ahead. Is it there? He asked with an uncontrollable quaver. Son, the man said in a voice slow with wonder. I see a white cloth 
tied on almost every twig. You are that son, that daughter, who doesn't deserve to come back home to the father, who misses the mark, but dare to look. Jesus put out not just a white cloth, a white cloth on an apple tree, but an empty tomb cloth that says, child, you are forgiven. Welcome home. Mm -hmm.